We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Everyone's talking about product-led growth in the subscription world right now. Companies are seeing the connection between the way a product is designed and how effective the company is at acquiring, engaging, and retaining customers, and even driving referrals. To do product-led growth well, product managers need to think like business leaders as well as thinking like product builders. It isn't easy, and not everyone has the right skills. My guest today, Caitlin Roman, has led product teams at three great subscription-first organizations, LinkedIn, Medium, and most recently, The Athletic, which was acquired in January of 2022 by The New York Times for about $550 million. I'm excited to talk to her because she has developed pattern recognition about what it takes to build great products that actually help grow the business. In today's conversation, Caitlin and I talk about best practices learned at LinkedIn, Medium, and The Athletic, the skills needed to drive product-led growth, and how to partner with data analytics teams to make better, faster decisions. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Hi, Robbie. It's great to be here. You're an interesting guest for me because you've actually been at a number of different subscription businesses in various product roles. So I'm wondering if you could share your subscription journey. How did you end up being a subscription product leader? Yeah, definitely. It was not a premeditated path, but it has been a really fun journey. I love that subscription business models reward companies that consistently deliver value over time. So it aligns these business incentives with customer needs. And it's been really, really fun to get deeper into that. My subscription journey started in 2015 after I graduated from business school and I came to work at LinkedIn. I had a choice of which business unit to work with, and I really liked the premium subscriptions team. And I started in business operations, which gave me an in-depth look at the metrics of the business and how to operate a subs business at scale. And then I moved into product when the product manager I was working with at the time left. And this wasn't a premeditated move either, but as I started to get into product, it felt like a perfect fit. Had you been a product manager before business school? No, not at all. Honestly, if when I graduated college, if you had told me you're going to become a product manager, I would have said, what's that? I, I truly had no idea. <laughs> and so once I got into product at LinkedIn, it just felt like this this great fit for being able to bring people and teams together around the shared goal and figure out how to get there together. And I've been in product ever since. I know there are a lot of people listening who are either product managers or trying to become product managers. You found that it was a perfect fit for you. Why do you think product and subscription product was such a good fit for you? For me, I think it's, and maybe we'll talk about this a little more later, but I like being both in product to be able to think about customer needs, but also thinking about the business element of product. And so getting to be in there at the ground level and sort of see, you know, how does, when you think about a subscription business, when you think about how you're acquiring customers, how does that actually translate into the technology? Like you set the strategy, but then you also think about what are the technological challenges about something you may want to do and how can you work with engineering and design to sort of problem solve together and together 
make a decision that then in turn impacts the business. It's kind of this full circle thing. And it just, to me, that's just really fun. Awesome. Okay. So you came out of business school, you came to LinkedIn, not as a product manager, your boss, who was a product manager left, you went into that role, you felt the ease of a, of a comfortable shoe. And what happened from there? Yeah. So at LinkedIn, I was responsible for acquisition of premium subscriptions. So that's the online lineup of subscriptions that LinkedIn sells across these four subscription families, really complex lineup, super interesting. And Wait, so four, four separate lineups. Yeah, four. Some of our guests, we had a guest a few weeks ago from from LinkedIn, who I think you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Jill, Jill, Jill Lanes. Yeah. And can you just remind, it's a very big company with a lot of subscription depth. Can you just name what those four categories are? Yeah. So the first two are more consumer oriented. Those are premium career and premium business for job seekers and small businesses kind of respectively. And then you have the online version of Sales Navigator, which is for salespeople. But there's also this field sales component where uh, there's a more fully featured version that the enterprise team is selling. And then similarly for the recruiter subscription, there's an online version and then there's a field sales version. So it's this, this really this mix of kind of B2B, B2C, field sales online across these four different subscription families. So highly complex. And I think on the spectrum of subscription jobs, this is a pretty sophisticated organization, I think, when it comes to subscription variety and and, um, challenges. Um, Okay, so go on. Yes. So I was really enjoying my time at LinkedIn, was learning a lot there. Then I got a call in mid-2017 from a friend who was at Medium, and it sounded like a really exciting opportunity to join a smaller company and be a part of that earlier stage growth journey, Medium being the the online publishing platform where anyone can write on Medium and there's uh, this whole wealth of content in all sorts of categories from tech to personal stories on there on Medium. And I started just as Medium was launching this new product called Medium Membership, which is a paid subscription. And at that point, there was so no concept of exactly what the value proposition would be or what content exactly would be in the membership. And so I helped that business grow from its early days, helped develop the paywall strategy, all of the growth flows there from the start, which was really exciting. And I started as an individual contributor PM, and I built out a full growth product org there across four different product teams, which were acquisition, retention, payments, and SEO. Huh. Interesting. So that was the org structure you chose. Was that the same org structure that you had experienced at LinkedIn or did you develop that based on kind of unique attributes of Medium? Yeah, it was definitely based on the way Medium operated and what our needs were. And it evolved over time. I would say that was not the fixed structure from the beginning. We added one team, we split, you know, split a team off, gave them their own charter. Then we felt like it made sense to pull out another team. Payments kind of came later on as we realized we needed to have more focus around that, especially since we were not only taking in payments for subscriptions, but also paying writers. So it sort of organically developed, but that was myself and my engineering partner. We, we developed that org structure together. Interesting. Okay. And then after two and a half years of Medium, I left to join The Athletic, which is a sports media subscription business with coverage across all the major teams, leagues in the U.S. and the U.K., And The Athletic was interested in leaning more into uh, product-led growth for their already very successful subscription. And so I built that product growth team up there and did a lot of work around pricing and packaging. 
And a little over a year after I joined The Athletic, I became VP of product, leading the whole product team. And we were acquired by The New York Times in February, which obviously The New York Times being perhaps the preeminent media subscription business. And so really exciting outcome for for The Athletic and, and for The New York Times, I think. And I decided to leave The Athletic after the acquisition closed in February. And my daughter was uh, due to be born in March, and I wanted to spend some more time with her. So it's definitely been a whirlwind seven years in the world of subscriptions. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, from my perspective, the structure and challenges of each of those roles is so different, but it also, I think, serves to give somebody a sense of the different flavors and the range of possibilities in this category of, you know, subscription product or, you know, even general general management of a subscription business. I wonder if you could briefly just share maybe kind of what was your biggest learning at each of those roles? What did you take away? Yeah. As you say, I think they are each such different businesses at different stages. So it's really interesting to reflect back. With LinkedIn, I think what I learned is is that how you acquire subscribers makes a huge difference in how those subscribers retain later on. We would run these experiments on it was called the chooser page, which was the page that lined up the four different subscriptions. And we would change how we described those different subscriptions, making even the smallest copy changes in who the subscription was for. And that would really impact conversion rates for the different subscription families. But then you would see a month or two later, that would also impact the retention of those cohorts down funnel. So you could make someone think that they should buy a certain plan, but if it didn't actually meet their needs, they wouldn't stick around. And this really brought home for me that subscriptions are a long game, pays to start out on the right foot with subscribers. And even if that means you may acquire slightly fewer at the start, you really want to build that relationship with trust and with with the right foundation from the beginning. Got it. And what about the other two organizations? Yeah. So at Medium, what I learned is that the first action you prompt users to take when they reach your site really matters. We had pretty big success asking logged out users to sign up or sign in rather than asking them to subscribe and pay us as their first action. And again, this goes back to the theme, like similar to LinkedIn about relationship building. What is it that you're asking users to do when you first meet them? You're not saying, oh, let, you know, let's get married, but instead like, let's go on a date, let's try it out. And you convince them to create an account with an email address. And that means you can reach them via email. You can send them great stories. They'll eventually click on those stories. They'll hit the paywall and they'll eventually subscribe. But it's a journey. It's not going straight to the end from the first click. And that requires you to be a little patient and build really great life cycle flows as well to make this all work. But we really saw big success when we, we sort of shifted the paradigm of what we were asking users in that first moment. When you say you shifted the paradigm, what was the original paradigm? And then what was the the later paradigm? Yeah, well, there were two flavors of this. One was just simply when you reached the site, the medium site, we instituted a, a little pop-up that said, hey, you know, would you like to, to sign in? And it was optional. You could click out of it. But even just asking someone, create an account, sign in, let us give you more personalized recommendations. We saw big increases in logins and signups from there. But then the other piece was when we actually had, when we had our paywall, the hard, when you had reached your limit and we said, you cannot read any more, pay us. Instead, we changed that for logged out users to say, sign in, we'll give you some more free stories. And then they could sort of continue. And eventually they would hit the paywall as a signed in user, but we didn't do as much of a hard blocking when someone was logged out. Got it. So a more gradual approach and one that's more cognizant of the user's journey to membership. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, and then at LinkedIn, you learned about the quality of the acquisition and the impact on lifetime customer value and the ongoing relationship. At Medium, you learned about the importance of understanding that user's journey to membership and making that more of a gradual development, uh, a dating period, as you described it, rather than just meeting someone and asking them to pay or in other words, kind of like asking somebody you just met to get married. What was the the main learning at The Athletic? Yeah, I think The Athletic, it's, it's kind of in that vein. It, it's around maybe even more macro. Uh, it's that if you have real value behind your content, you can confidently charge for it. And I think this is something that the industry has gone back and forth on. You know, can you actually get someone to pay? It, does this subscription model work? And I think what The Athletic showed is that if the content you're producing is just so great, our journalists were just incredible and the best in their field. And we had a hard paywall and, and it worked. People understood that the only way that they could access the content was to pay. That was a very clear message. And of course, you know, as you get bigger, you know, you want to use different promotions to help people get more comfortable with taking out their credit cards. And, and you've got to work on growing top of funnel awareness and consideration. But this idea that just fundamentally you could build a subscription business with really high quality differentiated content, that was a really great learning for me of, of working on The Athletic and just feeling so confident in, in the product that we were selling. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's really important and overlooked. And one nuance I just want to want to point out is that there is a lot of high quality content that people are not willing to pay for. Yes. And one of the things that's really important, and I've seen a lot of news organizations kind of fail in this area, is that they say, hey, I had a really smart journalist write a really high quality, well-researched, well-supported story. So we have high quality content. Why aren't people paying for it? Mm. Right. And it also matters is this content that people are willing to pay for, which I think is a different, requires a different lens yeah. than is this content that someone will read, right? Is this content that someone will, will click on? There's, I think, a different bar. And for a lot of newsrooms, it requires just a different way of, of thinking about what stories to write and how to write them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that is one thing, the category that The Athletic was in of sports, there's just such high willingness to pay there. So yes, that's a great sort of additional lens. It's high quality content and in a category that is just so desired and people's passion is such that they are willing to pay. So it's sort of a combination of those two things. Yeah, I did an early subscription story interview with Greg Pachoda from the International News Media Association. And we talked quite a bit about this, how a lot of news organizations are trying to figure out the difference between news that gets clicks and news that people are willing to pay for. And for me, The Athletic has always been a really good example of an organization that from the beginning knew they were focused on news people would pay for. And, and your point about people being willing to pay for sports news, I yeah. think is is really important, and particularly well-researched, well-written, timely sports news. There's it seems to me as the wife of a sports fan, limitless, <laughs> limitless <Yes>. appetite. <laughs> no, it's it's absolutely true. Yeah. So really interesting. I wanted to circle back to something that you said, you were talking about product-led growth. And I was wondering if you could just explain what is a growth-led product team and, and how does that differ from a normal product team? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think that as I've gone through these different roles, I've started to see that there is actually this differentiation between growth PMs and more sort of the core product org. And just in terms of how you think about setting up those teams, the surrounding functions, as well as the actual product managers and the skill sets that you're looking for, for those different types of product teams. And and in terms of that that different skill set, and I don't mean to say here that folks have to be one or the other. I think you can actually cross over between the two and be successful. But I have seen that the the best growth PMs are in a slightly different mindset when they're in that growth role. And the way I think of it is growth PMs is sort of this GM PM, GM meaning general manager and then and then you product manager. So you're also helping run the business in addition to shipping products for users. And that's sort of the the key differentiation. And of course, you know, again, core product managers may be looking at metrics around engagement and that sort of thing, but there's still this extra layer when you're truly in a growth situation where you have to really understand the business model of the company, the growth strategy, and how those growth letter levers can be used to drive the business. And then there's also this layer where you have to help operate the business on a weekly basis. In my view, the best growth PMs will be doing this. So you're thinking about how did the business perform? How does that compare week over week and versus expectations? If the, especially if the company has a financial plan that you're trying to hit, you really want to be very well-versed in what those expectations are and how you're performing against the expectations. And then you may have to make adjustments to the product plans based on that performance. And so being able to take, it's kind of that full loop I described where you understand what's going on in the business. You translate that with your engineers, designers, analytics team into an experiment or a a tweak to the product. And then you see how how did that drive business outcomes? And so being fully comfortable in all stages of that cycle, I think that's kind of where growth product managers shine. And again, you you want growth PMs to have really great user intuition and, and work well with engineers, but that business lens that you can add is just so important. Yeah, which kind of going back to your original story about how you started at LinkedIn more in a business role and moved to product and and really growth orientation and sort of found your place. It is interesting because it's not like a product manager is a product manager is a product manager, especially as a subscription business grows, there might be, you know, billing specialists and growth specialists. And they're, yeah. they can often be, they certainly have different priorities and they might even have different personalities. Yeah. I think the personality piece too, there's this, there's not just the skill set lens, but there's also what's your interest. I found that some people really like having revenue responsibility and accountability. They found it exciting and other people find it really stressful. And so you want someone who has that interest in owning a PL or being part of that PL ownership in addition to simply having the business skills. And so I think it's like a little bit of a, a personality check if you're thinking about going in it as well. Like, do you actually think that that, that level of, of revenue responsibility is, is something you'd like to have? I want to change gears a little bit and talk about everybody's favorite topic, which is pricing and packaging. How many tiers should you have? How should they be focused? Is it focused by kind of volume and commitment or is it by different profiles or personas? I know you had a really interesting experience early on at LinkedIn that really helped to form some of your perspectives on this. Could you talk a little bit about how you thought about the premium options circa 2016 and what decisions you made and why? Yeah, it was a really interesting uh, set of experiments that we ran. And the fundamental question at the time was, should we have subscription tiers that are more value-based or and, and more user-based or s- tiers that are more f- feature-based? And, and that's maybe a tension that other businesses may have as well. It's not just specific to LinkedIn. 
And in our case, when I started, it was very user-focused. So who were you as a user? What were your goals? And therefore, what was the appropriate subscription to for you as opposed to, you know, here's a list of features and you select the plan that maps to the features that you want. So that was what it was. And we actually tried a version that was more features-based on this, this chooser page that had the four subscriptions and it didn't work. It was actually a, a big failure, one of the biggest failures for me as during my time as a, a product manager and, and also one of the biggest learnings for me. So that approach might've worked in a different business, or, um, but for the premium business at that time, it, it wasn't right. And so what did work? We actually, we stuck with the, a modified version of the more user-based chooser. So we, we continued to run experiments and to, to make changes to how that selection process unfolded, but we didn't change the fundamental premise that it was more based on, on users. Yeah. So people looking for a job, people in sales, that kind of thing, yeah, as exactly. opposed to people who need access to X or Y. A certain number of in-mail credits, for example, or, you know, one of uh, that. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. And I appreciate you sharing that you know, that experience and also saying, you know, we tried something, it didn't work because I think a lot of times, even on, you know, I call this show, you know, true tales from the trenches, but a lot of times people only share the stories that worked perfectly. Yeah. But I think, <laughs> I think it's important. I think every good, good entrepreneur, business owner tries a lot of things and some of them go really well and some of them fail. And part of success is being able to recognize, oh, this experiment didn't work. So I'm going to move forward with that new information um, yeah. with greater confidence. So I love that story. And I also like the way you broke it down between, you know, features-based or, or user profile-based, which I think is an issue that a lot of people have. And I think the the bias, you can disagree with me if you want, but I think the bias of most companies is to be feature-based yeah. because that's where they spend all their time is understanding features and turning around and saying, okay, what are the different types of people coming to our to our site or looking to buy from us or subscribe with us and how are their needs different? Right. Um, it's, it's just a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also that lens helps you push yourself to say, are tiers even needed in the first place? I think sometimes you can kind of over complicate your subscription lineup in a way that's actually not helpful. So if you sort of hone in on what's that reason for being, is it a different use case? Is it a different user audience? Or is it some other reason? And be able to clearly articulate that differentiation versus just kind of falling into a feature by feature. Okay, well, let's just sort of arbitrarily remove this feature from this particular bundle and then call it a new a new tier. So just another lens as you're constructing tiers. Yeah, it does seem to be an area that trips up a lot of people. And you know, when you ask them, why do you have that tier? Who is that tier for? that is really going to love that one and not the other one. And if they say something like somebody who wants more in-mail credits, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, it's like, well, I don't know who that is. But. Yeah, exactly. So you talked about how when you made that decision, you looked closely at the data and the data told you that it wasn't working as well. And so you moved back to making small incremental changes to improve the, the user-based approach, the user-based tiering. You've told me before, metrics are not a set it and forget it thing. And... Rather, you talked about them as being something fluid and, and changing, depending on kind of the overall goals of the organization, the North Star metrics, the corporate metrics, but also the metrics of each specific team. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about, you know, people always say, which metrics should we focus on? And I think, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the answer is it depends. And it depends even within the same organization over time. 
Yes, absolutely. So as you say, like, I think it's super important. I think the most important thing you can do as a product leader is to set the right goals. And so, and that sort of cascades down to the whole way the product team works. You know, if you think about Marty Kagan, who I, I really love the way he formulates his, his differentiation between feature teams and empowered product teams, like the way you get empowered product teams is good goals. So that just a sort of table set, that's, that's why goals are so important. But as you called out, there are two layers to this. There's one sort of what are the goals at the top level of the company? And then the second layer is how do you set up teams and orient them around goals that ladder up to that top line goal? So we talked about the first, just to simplify this a bit, in a subscription business, you can pretty much choose to focus on the number of subscribers or the revenue, the average revenue you're bringing in per, per uh, subscriber. So often these two metrics are in conflict. So if you lower prices, you're going to bring in more subscribers, but you may not actually increase total revenue. And so it's really important as an executive team to decide which metric fundamentally you want to grow at the end of the day. And if you get the other two, that's a bonus. That's great, but not sort of assuming that you can grow both simultaneously. And this decision has a big impact on the pricing initiatives you you choose to pursue. And just to give an example here at The Athletic, when we optimized for subscribers, we started offering a monthly subscription with an, this attractive introductory offer. It was $1 a month for three, six, 12 months. This worked phenomenally well to drive subscribers, but it was not as great for revenue. And then down the road, we said, you know what, actually revenue is, is the top line goal for the company. And that meant, you know, we need to switch away from this, this monthly offer. We're going to go back to annual. That's going to help us hit our revenue targets. We'll have a negative impact on subscribers. And so that kind of trade-off, like as a growth product leader, you really need to understand what are the different levers. And if you change something, what's going to be the impact on the other metric and, and just tee that those trade-offs up so that you can help the executive team make these decisions. And because once you make that decision, then the, the growth product team has clear direction on what they need to do. But if you're kind of waffling back and forth between the two, it can be really disorienting for the team. As a leader, my experience with a lot of executive teams has been, we would like both. Yes. Can't we have both? <laughs> yes. And what do you say when, let's say, when you're pretty new into an organization and they say, we would like both? <laughs> That's, uh, it's a great question. It's a really difficult one. So I think data is your friend here. Being able to point to, ideally, you have some sort of experiment that you've run that you can say, hey, you know, we ran this experiment. It showed X for, for revenue and Y for subscriptions. And this is the type of trade-off we can expect. If you don't have that data, which is entirely possible, I think just trying to be very calm about it and just explain the dynamics that you see. You know, what, what I am, you know, we could do this, this thing and that would drive subscriptions, but I'm imagining and, and, you know, do some back of the envelope math, work with your analytics team. I'm imagining that based on these set of assumptions, it might have this impact on revenue. Are we comfortable with that? What type of impact to revenue would we be comfortable with if we could get this amount of subscriptions? So you're just continuing to ask these different questions and frame it in different ways and make certain assumptions, be clear about those assumptions and just have that back and forth dialogue, just in, again, in a very rational way to help people start to think through and internalize that there might actually be these trade-offs. Yeah. And it is, I think for a lot of leadership teams, the way that subscription revenue comes in and the relationship between the way you acquire them, because I imagine also at The Athletic, you know, if you acquire somebody for a dollar and then at some point they go up to the regular rates, they might be more likely to cancel than somebody who came in at full price. Yeah. And all of those kind of nuanced 
details around how a subscription model works, you have to explain it and you have to you have to look at the numbers and start to see how the pieces fit together, how, you know, I had one client, they were getting ready to fire their whole retention team because they were struggling to retain. But the acquisition strategy, it was a streaming company and it was, we have this one awesome title, subscribe and get access to this one awesome title. And, you know, what would happen is people would sign up for the two-week free trial, watch the one awesome title and then cancel either before they paid or in the first period. And that company saw that the retention team owned retention and the acquisition team owned acquisition. And the acquisition team was doing a phenomenal job in their eyes. And the retention team was terrible. Oh, no. (laughs) Right? And so understanding that there is a correlation and that there are trade-offs, like, yeah, let's acquire fewer people who are willing to pay the full price and they'll stay longer. And maybe our, you know, lifetime value will be better, but we'll have a smaller number of subscribers. Those are, I think, trade-offs that often require education. Yes, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And I think it's, yes, it's this sort of open dialogue around how are the teams relating to each other. And and this kind of gets into the second point around the goals for the teams, setting goals for teams that are cognizant of what other teams in the company are doing. Because yes, you can't set your retention team a, a goal of X percent retention if then on the acquisition side, you're going in and acquiring less, you know, qual- unqualified users who are going to churn. It's And that's, I think, the role of the growth product leader is really to see all of these interrelations and interdependencies and both articulate them to the executive team as well as to then translate that into the, the goals for teams, which, which I can talk a little bit about now. So on this front, I, I really believe in having a flexible model for team goals. And so you're you're not, as you, as you said, we're not setting and forgetting it. We're revisiting those goals at least every six months, if not every quarter through that quarterly planning process. And so within a particular team, like for example, even if you have an acquisition team that remains stable over time, your strategy around acquisition may evolve as the business changes. And so one quarter, it may, you know, like that example we talked about with Medium, it may make sense for that acquisition team to focus on driving account creation. And then you know, the next quarter, you're focused back on driving subscriptions. And that doesn't mean that in that quarter, that first quarter, you don't care about subscriptions, but it's just that you're focusing the team so that their their efforts, their product work can be around driving whatever metric we think matters most strategically at this point in time. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I like the focus and the discipline. It's so much easier to build momentum when everybody's working toward one shared goal than to have, you know, eight goals because a dashboard, (laughs) there's never a dashboard with one metric that tells you how the business is doing. So helping the team understand kind of the the trade-offs and giving them a a focus point, I think is is wonderful. Yeah. Um, Something that I was curious about, we talked about, you know, having, you know, leadership teams that don't know subscription and trying to educate them about these trade-offs and relationships. I've seen a lot of mergers go badly when a subscription business is acquired for their multiple, Mm. but the acquiring company doesn't know what to do with them when they get them. Mm. And I'm guessing that was not the case when the New York Times acquired The Athletic, being that both organizations are really subscription-first businesses. Can you walk me through the experience of the kind of merger of two, two subscriptions both as you know, part of the leadership team at The Athletic and specifically as the functional head of the product team? Yeah, definitely. And, and just to, to caveat, you know, I was there more during the period prior to the close of the acquisition, and then I left sort of right after that, that acquisition did close. But in terms of the transition, I think there are maybe two things to call out. One is, as being responsible for the growth product team, we had certain 
growth targets that we wanted to hit that were, you know, very much relevant in light of strategic conversations that were going on. And so on the growth side, we wanted to be really responsive to the what was going on externally, but then at the same time, keep the team focused on the projects they're working on and not feel too much whiplash. So that was, I think, on the growth product side, it was really that sort of balance between responsiveness and and keeping the team a little bit protected from from what was going on in terms of external conversations. And then I guess similarly, if you think about being the functional lead of the the whole product org, there's, I think, a lot of uncertainty when you're in a strategic process like this. And, and certainly once the acquisition was announced, but it hadn't closed yet, we were in this limbo period in terms of product planning and wanting to plan for 2022, but not knowing exactly what was going to happen when once the acquisition closed. And so for me, my goal was to keep product teams moving on projects that I had confidence would be of value in any scenario and not let ourselves get bogged down in this sort of limbo situation. And there's there's a lot of behind the scenes work that happens among cross-functional leadership to, you know, engineering, design, analytics, saying, okay, what are the no regrets projects and how can we sort of make them happen? So that's where I spent a lot of time in the in the pre-closing phase. But then, you know, Post-close, as you say, the you know the New York Times are absolutely uh, best in class on the subscription front. So I, I, I don't think there was any issue there. Yeah, fascinating. So you've been home for a little while since leaving the athletic and being with your with your child, and I'm sure reflecting on what you want to do next. What are you thinking about? How do I want to answer this on this podcast? Um, <laughs> I have so many different versions of this answer. I am excited to do something a little bit different, maybe actually, which I, I've perhaps in subscriptions, but perhaps outside. I'm honestly pretty open. I think it's for those who have kids, you realize that you kind of just do this reset when your your kid arrives. And very unexpectedly, I, I when she came, I found myself just really excited to kind of learn and and stretch myself, I guess maybe perhaps inspired by the fact that she seems to learn something new every single day. So I'm honestly pretty open, just looking to find a great company and and a role where I can have have impact. Awesome. Are you up for doing a speed round to close sure. out our interview? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. First subscription you ever subscribed to? The New York Times. A product that you weren't part of designing that you think is terrific. What comes to mind is actually Figma. I, uh, working with our designers, our design team, and obviously the big acquisition being on my mind right now, but it's just a phenomenally designed product for designers. Awesome. And your favorite subscription that you used this week? I'd say Stratechery. I've, uh, with a little bit more time, I've actually been able to read, stay more current with Stratechery's. I often get behind and I've really enjoyed being able to catch up and hear what Ben Thompson has to say about, about the, the tech world. Yeah, awesome. It's a great subscription, a great source of, of information. If you have time to take a step back and read, it's, it's a great one. Thank you so much, Caitlin. This was a fantastic interview, chock full of tactical tips and also a broader perspective. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us uh, for this interview today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me. That was product leader, Caitlin Roman, who has led product teams at LinkedIn, Medium, and The Athletic. For more about Caitlin, you can follow her at linkedin.com slash in slash Caitlin Roman. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Caitlin, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Caitlin and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. 
Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.